This is John DeFalbe at John Sandoz Bookshop in Chelsea, London, and I'm joined today on Zoom by Thomas Harding, the author of a new biography of Lord Weidenfeld, which is called Maverick, George Weidenfeld and the Golden Age of Publishing. I should acknowledge an interest in the book at the outset. Lord Weidenfeld was already a familiar figure at Sandoz when I started there in the 1980s and remained a good customer until his death in 2016. But he's not really a household name. He'll be known to many of our listeners, but he's not a household name. So, first of all, Thomas, welcome. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Who was George Weidenfeld and why was he interesting? <laughs> so, so, George Weidenfeld uh, came to England in 1938. He was a refugee from Vienna, Austria, Jewish. Uh, he arrived with no friends, uh, no money. He barely could speak English. And 10 years later, he set up a publishing company with Nigel Nicholson. And together they set up this publishing company called Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And it went on to publish some of the greatest books, most important books of the 20th century. And through George and through these books, I wanted to understand more about what makes a great book. How do uh, works of literature get made? And what is the what is the secret source, you know, for making these great works? And George himself is a fascinating character. Uh, he's, he was married four times. And uh, he was, uh, you know, a rogue and, and a very colourful character. So I was really interested to find out more about him. How, how come you were asked to do it? You didn't, you didn't know him? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, know I never met him. And so out of the blue, I got a phone call from the chairman of Weidenfeld Nicholson. And he said, you know, would you be interested and I was very flattered, of course. And I said, I'm not sure I'm the right person. I've never met him before. I'm surely there's other people who are better qualified. And he said, no, that's actually why we would like you to write the book, because you never met George Weidenfeld. And also, I share uh, some of the background. My family's German, Jewish. We, uh, my uh, family were refugees from Nazi Germany. So there's some similarities in some of, some of our cultural background. You'd, you'd written a, a bit about your own family's background. And... Um, in a previous book, the um, ostensible point of uh, there is that Weiden, the chairman of Weidenfeld is thinking this man is controversial, not you, but George Weidenfeld, um, is a controversial man and we need, need a fresh eye. The implication is that everybody has got preconceived ideas about him. We want a, 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 a new look. Um, who comes fresh to the evidence. And I think you say that they opened all their um, archives to you and also his family. Well, actually, not quite. I mean, almost, but not quite. So <laughs> my next question, I, I, I called him back and I said, look, I'm, I'm quite interested. I'm, I'm not the most well-read person, so I'd be really interested in reading some of these amazing books. You know, we're talking about Lolita by Nabokov and, and the group by Mary McCarthy and Saul Bellow and, you know, all these incredible authors. And uh, what, what do you have? You know, because I, I write nonfiction. I need data. I need sources. And he said, well, unf unfortunately, he said, we used to have this incredible archive, but it's gone missing. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you want me to write a book about the guy I've never met and you don't have an archive? And I said, do you have, do you have a list of books that you've published? You know, could you send that to me at least? He said, no, unfortunately, we don't have a list of all the books that we've ever published. 
I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're not making my life very easy. So um, I kind of got into it a little bit. I said, let, let, me, let me just look into it. So I, I looked into it a little bit and I, I did manage to find what happened is they, they had a, an extraordinary archive um, and they put it into storage. And then because they ran out of space, this is Hachette, they then sold the archive and it ended up in Princeton. And this was during COVID. So I contacted Princeton, who have an amazing uh, resources and archives. They really invested in, in, in kind of publishing and literature. And I contacted them and said, can I come and say? And they said, no, it's, it's, it's COVID. You know, you can't, you can't come over. And I said, well, please, can I come over? <laughs> Otherwise, I can't do this book. And eventually, we negotiated something. And I was the first person into their archive after COVID. And I was confronted with 405 boxes which is, I don't know, above 500,000, 700,000 documents. It's a lot of documents. And I spent a month in the archive. It was extraordinary. I was the first one into the archive. It hadn't been, hadn't been organized. It was totally random. And so you had everything from corporate tax uh, returns to letters from Edna O'Brien, uh, uh, you know, from memos about the photocopier, um, which photocopier to purchase, um, to discussions about... Um, uh, what to call Levi Strauss's book, you know. So it, it, was, it was an amazing kind of collection of material. And, and it was just uh, fascinating, totally fascinating. And then I came back to England and I was, got in touch with, you know, as many people as knew George as possible, including his secretaries. He had many secretaries over the years. You know, his publishing firm started in 1949. He died in 2016. And he had secretaries throughout that. And sometimes he'd have more than one. And so I spoke to for as many as I could find. And one of them said, oh, I think there's, an, there's another archive in London. And she wasn't sure where it was. She was responsible for putting it into storage. She wasn't sure where it was. So I then had to find the archive. It turned out that Hachette had an archive it was paying for, but didn't know that it was George's archive. And so then there was another 76 boxes. And in there, there are letters to Nabokov, um, Princess Margaret, um, incredible letters with Nigel Nicholson, private letters with Nigel Nicholson, at the very, very moving. At the end of their lives, they were explaining what each other meant to each other. So I was really fortunate to have access to all these documents. Um, we'll come back to, to the documents, but for, um, can we return to the, for the moment to the question of who he was? Now, you open the book with a wonderful portrait in, your, in the introduction of which amounts to why one might be interested in him, or why the world might be interested in him, which seems to have all its contradictions, his contradictions, on show at once. Um, and it's a dinner party in the US at Anne, Anne Getty's. Now, what was going... Who was Anne Getty? Why was she involved with um, Weidenfeld at that time? And, and yeah. who, who was there? What was going on? Why do, why do you present this? So it's it's a it's a one it is a wonderful scene. It's in it's on Fifth Avenue. Anne Getty was married to Gordon Getty, one of the richest men in the world, who's an oil tycoon, um, and uh, she also was a lover of literature. And she and George had had become friends over through opera, and they'd gone to Salzburg Festival together. And at one stage, uh, she said to George I, I, that she was interested in setting up a publishing house or being involved with a publishing house in America. And George had always spent time in New York, uh, you know, meeting at the Carlisle Hotel, one of these other hotels, uh, pitching ideas, bringing in book ideas. 
and he fancied actually being involved as as a publisher in New York rather than just acquiring books or working with existing publishers. And so together they hatched a plan and the shortest route that they could imagine into publishing was to acquire another publisher. And Anne Getty was a lover of Grove Press, which was had published some of the most interesting books, um, you know, The Beat Generation, Samuel Beckett, uh, and she was really excited about, she was very excited about acquiring Grove Press. So they, so they approached um, Barney Russett, who was the publisher of, of Grove, and said, would you be interested? And actually he was. And so that's how they entered into the publishing world of New York. And uh, George and Anne then had this American publishing house, uh, Weinfeld and Nicholson, New York. And they would have uh, dinner parties and uh, literary events. And one of these was in Anne's apartment. And there was uh, Donald Trump and Bernard Levin and all these, uh, the great and the good in New York. Uh, and, and at that, George was his normal self, you know, like uh, being, you know, hilarious and, 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 you know, erudite and, you know, charming and, and uh, mischievous at the same time. It's, um, it's a wonderful portrait because it brings together so many of his loves um, and uh, aspects of him. Opera, books, glamour, culture, also right. money. The, the why that he's having that dinner party on the face of it is to entertain all these people and so forth but also at its heart he's asking for money and money he, and money and power I and mean, power. power i think was definitely part of mm, it mm. <laughs> it's it's um it's it's interesting that immediately we the, the questions of money and power come in with him um but also and essential is his love of people and and of books that mm. these things all sit together with him um let's go back can i just can i just say just in terms of love uh, you know his he had i think an extraordinary ability to recognize talent so for example at that dinner party was henry kissinger and in the 1950s henry kissinger who was an unknown harvard academic had tried to sell his book that he'd written uh, about some obscure kind of European, you know, uh, uh, leaders, political leaders. And eight American publishers had turned him down. And he was at a dinner party with George in London. And George, recognizing this guy had talent, said, look, show me the book. And it was George who was the first person to publish this book. And they became lifelong friends, George and Henry Kissinger. And there was, there was some very interesting kind of similarities in terms of background and intellectual curiosity, fascination with power, interest in the transatlantic alliance and, you know, all those kind of, you know, the politics of it. But also at the base of it, I think, was this uh, George's ability to recognize, I don't know if you'd call it perspicacity, I don't know what the word is, but he had an ability, a vision to see genius and brilliance where it was and then to persuade that person. There was something about his ability to persuade that, whoever that person was, to come with him, whether it be Saul Bellow or Margaret Drabble or Edna O'Brien or, you know, any of these incredible writers. Vladimir Nabokov, he had, he had a relationship for decades. It's a very attractive thing, that, this ability to, in, in a sense, inspire other people, to energise, to galvanise others. Galvanise. I mean, you, you knew him. I, I never, as I said, what, what was your impression? I'd be really interested to know what your impression was. My my recollection of, his, of him is that he was always um, he was always extremely amiable, invariably polite, which is mm. one can't take for granted. 
um, and um, not not exactly Dornbach, but one was aware that he was a senior figure. He c carried himself like that. Um, so he he had an aura of he had a charisma, but it, perhaps a charisma that derives from power. But he, he that charisma was it there when he first came to England? Let's go back to to his background in Vienna. How how observant was his, his family were Jewish? How how observant were they? They they were not they were not that observant. Um, I mean Judaism was important to them. I was. I was very fortunate. So I'd written, I've never done this before. Um, I wrote a draft of the book and the first chapter I wasn't very happy with and I shared it with a couple of people and they're like, no, we're not very, we're not very enamored with this main character of yours, this protagonist. And I was in Vienna and I was to see his background, to go to his childhood home and go to his the flat that he grew up in. And then his daughter sent me this book, just I mean, literally out of the blue, and said, you might be interested in this. And this was a, the diary kept by his mother about his first year. And, it, and it, I, when I opened it, I thought maybe it's just going to be about, you know, he ate this kind of banana and, you know, maybe, you know, he grew this many pounds during these many months. But it was much more interesting than that. It was about exactly this, his Jewish background, about the politics of Vienna at the time. It was about his family's culture, about the characters, about George's personality and about her hopes for him in the future. And it was just like, okay, this is fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to write a book about books and about the books that George was associated with. And this was just perfect because it was a book not published by George, but a book which was definitely associated with him. And from that, absolutely, you could tell that Judaism was a vital ingredient to his background. His mother's family had rabbis going back generations. And that was very important to him. And I think maybe at different times of his life, both stimulating and inspiring but also sometimes intimidating you know and I spoke to David Price Jones one of his authors who wrote some amazing books including a book about Unity Mitford which I talk about in my book and he remembers George looking at this family tree with all these rabbis and saying that he'd maybe let them down maybe he hadn't done enough you know maybe he hadn't been the boy that his mother had always wanted there's an interesting um, dichotomy between being observant and being interested in the culture. And it seems to me that um, he, he was absolutely um, interested in the culture. And he, there's the curious thing of his uh, association, even while he was in Vienna, with Zionism. I don't know curious, but, it, but it's, it's worth noting, I think. And he went to Palestine and he joined young Zionists a, a club or association in which the most he, you you describe an extraordinary incident with dueling yeah so i mean he <laughs> I, I think he'd like to tell this story and he gave various interviews and one of them was to william shawcross and in this he talks about this this experience with dueling where to 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 enter into these fraternities and and he was entering into a fraternity you had to kind of prove yourself and 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 to provoke somebody into a, a, a duel and that's what he did and uh you know he wasn't the most athletic of characters and um he was hurt in the process it's very 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 hard to imagine that um figure um doing exactly. uh, handling a sword I mean, and yet he the the the, the thing that struck me 
was um, although in a sense it seems from our perspective such a silly thing it was necessary socially i understand um from what you, you write but also courageous it was and 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 also i mean he was there was definitely it was wrapped up in anti-semitism right and and so that was part of his early in in introduction into that and i think the the, the question about zionism is very interesting because I spoke to Ron Posner, who's now the Israeli ambassador to Germany, and he was a friend of George's. I asked him about George and Zionism, and he said there was different phases. It wasn't as simple of he was Zionistic. You know, he was he was part of the group that wanted to form the state of Israel before Israel existed, and he was part of that. And so he he was identified as a Zionist. You know, as part of Zionist organizations, quite radical. Then, of course, he was, you know, a proponent, an advocate of. He was then the chief of staff to the first president of Israel, you know. And, and then later on, you know, he was one of the big um, uh, publicists, advocates for Israel. And as he, as he kind of went through all these different phases, and then, and then I should also mention he published many of the prime ministers and presidents of Israel's their, their memoirs, autobiographies. As he went through these different moments of his life, his views, I think, changed a little bit. You know, and he was certainly, and, and you can understand why. Um, and when I was looking into it, it became fascinating for me, not just because of his own journey, but also how it conflicted with his work life as a publisher. And there was a few instances where there was definitely conflicts. And it raised, you know, some of these questions, which I think are very kind of contemporary about, you know, conflicts between uh, identity and loyalty. You know, where was his first loyalties? Was it to his culture and his, his, his kind of his religious affiliations or was it to his authors? You know, these kind of, and there's some of these things come up, in, you know, as I went forward in, my, in, in, in the research. There's an there's a obvious disparity between the publication of a lot of Israeli figures and at the same time he's publishing f figures by former Nazis. Um, well, I mean, how interesting is that? This is a, a Jewish refugee from Austria, and in the years after the war, he is the foremost publisher of books by leaders of National Socialism. And even, I mean, even, I mean, now it's strange, but even back then, it was incredibly controversial. Um, well, we'll come back to that, I think. Um, um, first of all, returning to his arrival in in England. There's a was always a story I remember hearing long ago. He sat himself in the middle of a grand hotel's lobby in London, hardly able to speak the language, and just started making networking and so on from there, um, which is a great story. In in your account, actually, he there were a lot of other people doing similar things. Um, it, it was the way things happened at the time. Um, but still, you get the sense of this extraordinarily, um, well, charismatic again, but ambitious, uh, savvy young man um, in London just before the war, but broke. So what did he, how did he manage? How did he proceed? I mean, funnily enough, the hotel you're talking about is the Strand Palace Hotel, which was my mother's family's hotel. Um, they were, you know, they were Prussian Jewish, German Jewish, and they came over in um, the 1840s to England, and they had built up this um, this re uh, catering empire, J Lyons. So there's so that you know, again, there's kind of a little bit of a kind of a touching of our two stories. Uh, yeah, so I mean, he, 
you know, he came to London with no contacts and uh, no family, no friends. He could barely speak the language. Um, but very soon, because he was so able and, as you say, so ambitious, you know, he was writing letters to the BBC, applying for jobs, and he got a job um, in their monitoring service. And, and his his task was to listen to German uh, broadcasts, radio broadcasts. To, to but he did that for two or three more years. I mean, he was he, he stuck at it. So again, this this I- I image of of the sort of butterfly that one gets, actually is um, given the lie by his first job. It must have been solid hard work for several years. Oh, I mean, I mean, he. I think he was a. T- I mean, I don't. I mean, I my impression of him was not as a butterfly or. I mean, you're right. There are certain myths maybe about George. You know, people say that he never read books. Well, I mean, that was obviously ridiculous. That, you know, he was, um, he, he didn't have a great attention span. Again, that was patently not true. You know, you could see with this, as you point out, the first job, but also the way that he built up his publishing firm and he stuck it out, at it for decades. And he was a tireless worker. You know, this monitoring would have been, you know, hours and hours and on end, you know, sitting in a chair with, headphones in your head, listening to German, having to write down what you heard. And then he was very quickly promoted. You know, he was soon having to, um, he was soon being invited to give his opinions about what was going on. Um, and, you know, apparently he was a great mimic. And so at one time he even, they, did, they, they didn't have a recording of Hitler. So he, he pretended to be Hitler in one of the broadcasts. So there's these kind of these funny anecdotes. But you're right, around... If you start digging and putting, pushing past the anecdotes, the stories, you can see if you push through the veil. You can see how hard he was at working. Um, yeah, this was a time when his his family he managed to get his parents out of Austria. Um, he was very concerned about them. The Blitz was going on in London. You know, like so many other people, he was really worried about his family. Um, you know, I think it would have been really stressful. His his, his father was then, in, then interned in Britain, wasn't he? It was interned in Britain. Um, you know, he just, I mean, his father, who had been arrested by the Gestapo in, in Vienna and held for quite a few months, was then taken um, into custody by the British because he was an Austrian Jew. And, you know, after Churchill had announced that the police had to collar the lot, collar the lot, he said, round up all the, the young men from German, Germany and Austria and other European countries and, and put them into internment camps. My grandfather was one of those many people were look you know these weren't concentration camps you know that's that's not that's not trying to exaggerate that how terrible they were uh, but also I think for George that would have been really difficult and certainly for his father who'd and uh, had experienced this terrible thing being in custody in Austria and George says from then on he was kind of the parent in the in the in in the relationship uh, and George's psychology I think is really interesting I mean he he became one of the world's great networkers. And yet throughout his life, as I was writing this book, I began to realize that he was really suffered from loneliness. And I think this was part of that. You know, the, 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 the treatment of his father, him having to step as the, I mean, he was only 19 when he arrived in England. So now he's in his early 20s. He's taking on more of the parental role. He doesn't have any support system. You know, this was very much added to his sense of loneliness, I think, which he certainly tried to compensate with by his extraordinary ability to network and forge relationships. And almost immediately, he's involved in books. Um, 
I, I didn't know until reading, well, there's many things that I didn't know until reading your book, but, but I was startled um, to discover that he, his first involvement with books was writing his own book. How amazing is that? Exactly. And, and I think that experience put him off writing any other books ever again. And uh, because he was, he, I think what happened in that book, it was a book about Goebbels and about kind of propaganda and, and Germany. And he wrote it with, a, with another man from the BBC. Um, and uh, their focus was really about the kind of the, the logistics and the kind of the mechanism of, of how the propaganda was working. And, and they used, he used his information he gathered from the monitoring service. So it was an obvious idea for a book. And, and what became obvious to me was uh, this was the moment that he fell in love with publishing, but not in the writing of books. And, and he, he, his reviews were really, the notices were harsh. I mean, the New York Times gave a, I mean, I, I winced when I read his review, um, the review by New York Times. And you can imagine, he, I, mean, I think he was a, the, not the thickest of skins of persons. And, and I think he would have been crushed by that. But he did... I think he would. He loved the the the, uh, the deal making, the formulation of ideas, the pitching, the contracts, the the structuring of the idea. I think that became the basis for his future work. Um, and his future work started pretty quickly. Um, he decided he wanted to get into. Um, he, well, you see, he started a magazine called Contact, and in order to um, then proceed with, pub, with publishing contact it, it, to get paper you described that in, in order to get paper after the war it was necessary to be a publisher so he had to publish a book and establish, set himself up as a publisher in order to get the paper to publish the magazine so there, there was paper there was a paper shortage after the war and magazines had severe restrictions and you couldn't set up a new magazine but what you could do there was, an, there was an exception for book publishers. So there was paper was available for book publishing. And so he, they wanted to set up a magazine called Contact. Uh, but to, he was given advice that to be able to do that, he had to pretend that it was a book publishing house. <laughs> so they, I mean, they had a hardback cover. Um, they, they called it Contact Books. And, and the, they also realized they had to publish some books in addition to this magazine. And so they looked around uh, searching for manuscript and they came across this this book by this you know academic uh, who wrote about coal mining and it was ready to go ready to publish that okay let's publish that um, that turned out to be Harold Wilson and, and and together with you know George had this extraordinary relationship with Harold Wilson publishing almost all of his books and of course was involved with you know his politics later on but by chance, that was the book that they first published. So that was chance rather than Weidenfeld spotting somebody in the way that you described with Kissinger. I think that's probably correct. I mean, I mean, let me think about that. I think the manuscript itself, he would have said, wasn't a great manuscript. But I think the person who wrote the book, I think he probably appreciated the quality of the person. So I think it maybe is in the same line as Kissinger's. I mean, Kissinger's book is particularly good. And it became this kind of, this, this kind of well-regarded book. Um, I mean, Kissinger's an amazing writer, I think. A beautiful writer. Uh, Wilson, I don't think he, many people would say that he was a great author. Um, this brings us to the foundation of Weidenfeld and Nicholson. 
and um, that was primarily again a matter of money, wasn't it? And but also the social connection. I mean, I think this speaks to this idea of George coming without any contacts, you know, and, and networks when he arrived in Britain. By the time they set up Weidenfeld and Nicholson, he had been in the country for almost 10 years. He knew a lot of people, especially through the BBC. He met some remarkable people. But I still think he was not on the inside of British society, you know, very much an outsider. And he was looking to set up this publishing house. He was really, he had become excited to publish books by the late 1940s. Contact books had been going for some time. And then he was introduced to this man called Nigel Nicholson, who, of course, is the son of Harold Nicholson, uh, diplomat, writer, memoirist, and uh, Vita Sackville West, uh, this extraordinary uh, character, author, um, and uh, very much on the inside of British literary, the British literary world, British political world. Um, yeah, they're part of the aristocracy, I think you, you could probably say. And uh, Nigel was, uh, by his account, enamoured by George, totally taken by him. And George invited him to help set up a publishing company and was particularly keen on his family investing. And they did. And so it was Nigel and his um, mother, Vita, who put some of the initial money in to the company, which became you know, had its own story and its own legacies, which which I found out when writing the book. That was totally a surprise to me. Um, there was quite a lot of hard feelings about that. But the money was very important to the, to the beginnings of Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And as you say, the introduction to society. And uh, look, Nigel was an amazing writer in his own right. You know, he was a very able person. And he contributed... It wasn't just money. I mean, Nigel really was a partner, certainly at the beginning. I think it, sh it shifted. You know, he became a member of parliament. He, you know, I think he moved more towards writing and less was less involved with the publishing side. And as George brought, had, was later on, George brought in other partners, other financial people. And then Nigel had played less of a role. But certainly at the beginning, Nigel was a, a key part of the early days of Weidenfeld Nicholson. But Nigel remained supportive of his association throughout his life, didn't he? I, mean, I have the impression that even though he was distanced from operations, that he was proud of the association and rather identified with it. I think pride is exactly right. And I, and I was, you know, I was... I found these letters between the two of them when towards the end of Nigel's life. And in George's archive and he'd kept the they were obviously important to George because he'd kept them and I shared them with Nigel's children they were deeply moved by them as well because as I was referring to earlier there was definitely some hard feelings because um, Nigel was you know even though his family had been early investors they were basically diluted so they had no shares after a while and and George uh, according to, to the family, George had promised to make good by them. That never happened. And then he made other promises that after he died, the family would receive some money. That never happened. So there's definitely hard feelings. And so then to see this other side, this these personal letters between the two of them, the family was really moved by that. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think throughout his life, Nigel was proud of having his name Nicholson associated with Ni with Van Pelden Nicholson, 
Look, and he also contributed his own books. You know, Marriage Portrait was hugely successful. And published by the firm. Exactly, exactly right. You know, about his parents, his parents' relationship. So, Thomas, the structure of the book, coming down to the structure of the book, um, instead of giving a cradle-to-grave doorstopper of a book, which would have been very, very long and very boring because he knew so many people, you tell us about the way you've structured it. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? I think the 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 way a book is structured. I'm I, as the more I write books, the more interested I am in structure, uh, because I think it can be the engine, can't it, of the the way that the reader is, is pushed forward, propelled forward. And you know, I'm someone who, when I read books, I don't really have much tolerance for dry, lengthy tomes. You know, I want to be entertained. I want to be encouraged to turn pages. That's just my taste, I guess. And so when I was asked to write this book, I was, first of all, I was very intimidated by the subject, but also I was wondering how I could do it, you know, in a way that would be of interest. And various attempts had been made in the past to write about George. First of all, he had written an autobiography himself, which he was not happy with and the critics were not happy with and the person who helped him write it was not happy with um and so i knew that you know to do a cradle to grave kind of uh path wasn't necessary because that's been tried before uh wasn't the way through so i was thinking about it and then i began to think about the books that were of interest because that's actually what i was interested in was the books and that quickly became the structure so it's nine the, the way i've organized it is each chapter is built around a book that he was associated with now these aren't just books that he published these are books that he was associated with so one was this diary that his mother kept from his first year when he was a child another was written by an ex-wife uh barbara skelton about their very scandalous relationship uh one of them is built around the obituaries that were written. It doesn't really qualify as a book, but I kind of made it into a book. Um, the obituaries that were written about him after he died. So again, I wasn't only just looking at books that he'd published, but mostly these are books that he published. I think maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing 14 or 15 of the 19 are books that he published. And again, it was partly because I was interested in him, George Weinfeld, the character, because I think he's a fascinating person. But I was also really curious about books and as cultural products what makes a good book what are the ingredients for success what is the role in a publisher you know the author obviously has a key role but what's the role of the publisher you know a a book can be written i'm sure you're very you're you're actually much more qualified to answer this than i am you know a book can be wondrous can be absolutely a glorious you know, text, manuscript, and yet it doesn't sell. There's no audience for it. It's it's hard to find its readers. I'd actually be really interested to hear from you what your thoughts are about that. You know, especially in a biography, what makes a good, a successful biography? Because I think that's something that George was very good at. He was able to work with individual authors and then find a way to find an audience for them. I think that um, that line from whatever song it is, ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it, all, always is, is important in book writing. That the, um, A good idea is only good if it's done well. There are any number of books one can think of where if you'd written the idea on the back of an envelope, 
Um, you yeah. think uh, this is can't possibly hang together. Go away and do it, um, and it comes back and it's wonderful. Conversely, you can have wonderful stories which are made unreadable, um, and actually the story of George Weidenfeld would be such a thing. I, th I think if you, if you did it in another way, it could be absolutely un un unwieldy. That you could have a biography of a writer which is 800 pages long. I mean, the, the, there have been doorstoppers about William Faulkner and so on and so on. Nobody's going to read them, um, ever, uh, mm. <laughs> except possibly somebody doing a doctorate. Equally, you have a biography, for example, David Gilmour's biography of Lampedusa, which is, whatever it is, 250 pages long. Lampedusa never did very much, except sit on his arse in cafes and chat about books. But somehow the book is made enthralling. It's by the way he does it. And the way that you do it here, the, the people that you talk about, you mentioned Barbara Skelton, you, there's also a, a chapter on Isaiah Berlin, Mary McCarthy, Saul Bellow, James Watson, the double helix, Antonia Fraser, Mary Queen of Scots. Um, there's a chapter on Mick Jagger, but although he never published Mick Jagger, it was something that didn't happen. So your, your way into his life is through these gateways, um, which means that some people probably who think, okay, great, we've got a biography of George Weidenfeld, and they go straight to the index, they're not going to find themselves because they don't happen to crop up in this particular, uh, in, in any one particular chapter. Um, nevertheless, the way you do it enables you to look at facets of his character and the way in which he published books. And I want to look at one particular one um, rather than taking all of your separate chapters and gutting them. But I th I th there's one which seems to me to open particular areas of his conflicts, which is David Price Jones's book on Unity Mitford. And that, you, you've mentioned it before, it, um, again, what you s said about it surprised me a, a lot because... It um, was published shortly, I mean, 10 years before I started selling books. Also, I, I, just as with George Weidenfeld, I've sold books to David Price Jones all my working life. I didn't sort of, I knew he'd written a book about Unity Mitford, and there it was on the shelf, but I had no idea of this controversy and what it yeah. revealed. So t will you... Tell us about that. I mean, this is one of those moments. I was in the Princeton archives and I was exhausted and I was, you know, I'd read so, my eyes were hurting, I'd read so many documents. <laughs> and I just came across this bulging file and it was the publishing file for this book about Unity Mitford, who of, of course was one of the Mitford uh, children, you know, um, had very uh, well-known sisters, Nancy, who was a writer. Uh, another sister was married to Oswald Mosley, the head of the British Union of Fascists. And another sister, Jessica, was a renowned communist sympathizer. And, you know, this extraordinary family. And these letters and correspondence in the publishing file, which I came across, was they were really startling. And they were a series of letters from the British aristocracy demanding not urging demanding that george doesn't publish this book 
and this is the 1970s and it was for me partly because I've I've written a lot about anti-Semitism. I've, I've researched what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, I'm familiar with anti-Semitism uh, in other countries, but not as much, certainly in the mid-20th century in Britain. And it, I was really startled by it. And and then it became a... What the correspondence revealed was this battle between these two sides. On the one hand, you had the British aristocracy, which was clearly anti-Semitic. I mean, it was clearly anti-Semitic. And they rallied around, they circled the wagons around Unity Mitford. And on the other hand was the publishing industry, which defended George and David Price Jones. And I think the publishing industry comes out of it really well. And it was a turning point. It, it struck me as a turning point where these kind of these demons from the Second World War and before the Second World War, really in the 1930s with the, with the black shirts, because the Oswald Mosley's fascists really did have a hold in Britain until the Second World War. Uh, those, you know, they, they, the aristocracy wanted to bury those stories they didn't anyone and, and then David Price Jones really revealed them and and he and George I think were extraordinarily brave and it wasn't easy and it was very hurtful um they I think they came across really well but it's uh, for me it was a fascinating insight into this this world normally you don't have access into these worlds but these private letters revealed uh how publishing really works you know what? Who is actually pulling the strings? Who's how, what? What is taken in and out of these manuscripts? You know, all these books are published, but what happens beforehand? You know, it's not just the lawyers who get their hands on it. It's the these outside forces who are influencing what's in these books. I think that's fascinating. The conspicuous thing there is how Weidenfeld stood by his author, and in the beginning, so far as I understand, David Price Jones went to the sisters and said, will you support this book? And they all said, yes. And on that basis, they, he was able to talk to hundreds of people who had known Unity because they were satisfied that the family endorsed the venture. Um, having done that and written his book and sent the transcripts of interviews to all the interviewees and to the sisters, they all said, hang on a moment, we don't want this. Is that, is that broadly speaking, what happened? That's, that's, that's just about right. And I think, it, I mean, it, it's, 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 a, it's an insight into the life of a biographer. I mean, this is, this is my first real attempt at a biography. And so some of it feels quite familiar <laughs> to my own experience in this project. And it's really tricky, especially for some with somebody who people lost their life who remember, where those ties are still vibrant and important to them. And yeah, as a result of Deborah Price Jones's very good research, uh, people then began to attract their support and privately and publicly. And it's a really bad look. I think, you know, in retrospect, you know, they don't come out of it very well at all. What's interesting, though, is for me, you know, is that, I mean, George in this instance comes out of it very well, but there's other projects where he doesn't come out of it very well. And so, again, because I think I came, look, we all have our biases and, and subjective baggage, but because I really started this project with no 
dog in the fight. I didn't really have any idea. I think it meant that when I came across these stories, they were just surprising. And I was just curious about them. And so many of these kind of, I think George is somebody where many anecdotes and stories are told. And so the narrative has evolved around him, which is kind of the, it's become the orthodoxy. I wasn't aware of any of that. And so I was really coming across this stuff. And, and so I'd, you know, I don't, think, I don't think it's possible to be objective, but as far as I could be, I just was turning one page and finding the next story. And, and so when I came to this, I was genuinely impressed and surprised and interested in this story. And I think George comes out of it really well. But then there's, when it comes to other events where he doesn't come across so well, I thought it was as, it was as important to include those. The, the example that crops up strikes me immediately is Kurt Waldheim. Kurt Waldheim, exactly. For example, you know, where Kurt Waldheim, who um, was head of the United Nations, became president of Austria, uh, turns out was a student in the same academy as George in Vienna. And when George had um, was experiencing anti-Semitism from uh, the authorities and wasn't allowed to attend lectures, Kurt Waldheim brought him his books and his lecture notes, you know, and George always felt indebted to him. And later on, George then published his memoirs. And that was all fine until some researchers found that Kurt Waldheim had totally lied about his involvement with the Nazi regime, his his time in the army, uh, his connections with various kind of, uh, you know, um, war criminals. And uh, that became a massive story in the New York Times. And George then publicly defended him and and I, I was able to speak to the editor who was involved with the book at the time and this was really fascinating to me John because and I came across this again and again and David Price Jones is is an example but also this editor is another where I'd, I found these documents and I would speak to them and their memory of these events isn't what the documents necessarily captured and when I said to them look this happened and this happened could you fill me in they were like no that didn't happen and then I would send them documents which they had signed or they had written. And they were like, oh, and they were surprised. And that was fascinating as a kind of a sidebar, as an insight into how humans, the memory works, um, how we, our memories of events aren't necessarily complete. And for whatever reason, I'm not a psychologist, we build these stories about our pasts where some things are left out and some things are kept in and kind of the interpretation kind of shifts over time. Yeah, we can't remember everything or it's hard to remember everything. And this was an example where I spoke to this editor and I was asking about her role in this because he, Kurt Waldheim, there was two different editions. One was a German edition, one was a British edition, which George was attached to. And this editor told me that she'd really encouraged him to include his wartime years and eventually he'd cut the whole thing out and I was talking to her about her that and I, and I said well what about this this affidavit you wrote and she said what affidavit and and uh, I said well here, let me send it to you and it was an affidavit that had been crafted for her by lawyers in you know I guess you'd call them crisis management experts today but lawyers in the states and it basically it was written in such a way that she took responsibility, Weidenfeld Nicholson effectively took responsibility for this huge omission of Kurt Waldheim's Nazi past. And I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. So not only is George Weidenfeld public, and it was then distributed to the media, not only is George Weidenfeld publicly 
uh, aligning himself with Kurt Waldheim, he's actually taking the fall for this massive, what, do you, what would you call it, a cover-up, a mission, lie? I don't know what you would call it. But that was, it's, and it became very important to, to Austria, very important for how Austria was treated in the post-war years. And, and by many accounts, it was a turning point for how Austria was considered by the international community and then led to, at last, a reckoning in Austria to its, its involvement with the persecution of the Jewish community. Today, if you go to Vienna now, there's now a monument to how Austria was responsible for the murder of over 64,000 Jews. So this book was really important in this historical sense, but also from a personal sense. You know, George took this extraordinary step in defending his, his, his childhood friend. Do, do you think that he was aware of being instrumental in this shift? Or Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I do. And, and um, there's another letter I found. Um, between him and Teddy Kollek, who's the mayor of Jerusalem, where he's encouraging Teddy to kind of join him in defending Kerbaldheim. And Teddy Kollek's like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And George then lays out his reasons, which go beyond his public statements. You know, publicly, he was saying, you know, he's a childhood friend and there's not enough evidence. But then in this private letter, he says, and importantly, we need Austria to support the state of Israel. We need Austrians' financial support, political support. And by going after Valtheim, who's now president of Austria, you know, we're putting that at jeopardy. And so that gives you an insight into his motivations. And he was very aware of the consequences. And it also shows his, the way he prioritized Israel above almost everything else in his life. And sometimes that come across as, interesting and, and, and laudatory, but other times it's like, it seems to me at least that he's, he's making some questionable choices. Which brings me to, to an, a fascinating thing that you raised towards the, 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 at the end um, about knowing your enemies. I, tell us about what, where, where that becomes explicit. Well, I mean... I mean, clearly, you know, in the post-war years, he was, a, he was the publisher where Nazi leaders published their books, whether it be uh, Speer or whether it be Bormann. Um, he, he, uh, Weinfeld published some of the speeches by Adolf Hitler. And uh, so that's part of the know your enemy kind of theory. And his view was very much, it's, if, we, if we're going to try and stop this from happening again, Let's make sure we understand these people. But he was always did it, I think, in a clever and delicate way. So he insisted that at the beginning of these memoirs or autobiographies would be an introduction by an expert who would put that person in context, you know, whether it be Hugh Trevor Roper or whoever it was, um, to make sure that people understood and would question and wouldn't take with a pinch of salt what some of these people were saying. And I, so I think that was, you know, very successful. And, and also they, these books were commercially really successful, you know, and that was always very important to George. You know, the money, the business side, he was essentially an entrepreneur, a literary entrepreneur, you know, as well as being so many other things. And, you know, sometimes the money didn't work out. And so then he would make a relationship with, it, with a new patron, you know, whether it be Anne Getty or Nigel Nicholson or, you know, 
some other kind of benefactor. And he was always very good at finding people to support his work. So the business side was always important to him. But he was also supporting other people philanthropically in one way or another throughout his life. He, he, did, he did things for other people, which you bring out from time to time. And to, towards the end, you focus on... Um, it, it's a, some foundation he set up for young people um, or some scholarship scheme. I mean, he, he was involved with so many, I mean, towards the end of their life especially, his focus was, considerable attention was paid towards the non-profit world. So, he, so in Oxford, there's, there were scholarships set up. Um, he supported uh, Christian uh, refugees from Syria to get out of Syria during the war. Um, he set up uh, various policy think tanks, the Club of Three, the Institute for Strategic Studies. I mean, he was very involved on the political side. Uh, philanthropy was very important to him. Again, Israel was at the centre of that. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. And some people, I think, may be surprised when they read my book because I don't give that much attention to that at the end. Uh, I don't make any apologies for that because my attention really was on his publishing career as a way to understand him. Look, there's probably somebody else might want to write a book about more of his political side. And he was very involved politically and in a, I think in a fascinating way and philanthropy and charitable work was important to him of course he was involved with the House of Lords um, he convened these conferences and what would you call it uh, conventions dialogue moments where uh, these leaders these thought leaders from around the world would get together you know whether it be Shimon Peres or Angela Merkel you know, would, would come together and discuss the important issues of the day. And he played this kind of brokering role. Um, he liked to call himself like the bridge builder between people. Yeah, and that was, you know, by all accounts, really important. Um, it's very apparent throughout his life that he is convening and brokering uh, arrangements with other people. But there's, yes. that, there's, that, there's a moment you describe with some scholarship students that he's with um, who are dismayed by his interest in another point of view. They think that it's... I forget, I'm ashamed to say, I forget exactly what it is that... It was the publishing of the Nazi books. He, they were asked, how could you publish all these Nazi books? And, and he says quite explicitly to them, you should learn to know your enemies. He's saying this to, right. to, to kids or young people who was right. surprised. And I, I, reading the book, I, I found this very striking, how um, the, in the range of his interests, the, the range of his abilities, but at the heart of it, there, there are various um, very consistent things in this man who is thought by, about whom there are such inconsistent views. And... Among those consistencies, uh, I think you, you mentioned at the start, the fear of being alone, yeah. um, which is fascinating. He hated being alone. And also the, the, the interest in young people, which, goes, um, which is such an attractive thing. And, and yeah. he doesn't mind that people are young. He thinks mm -hmm. that he wants them to learn. Um, and time and again, you, you, you mentioned him mentoring young people in some way or another well i mean i during my research for this book i kept meeting particularly men who said 
that they were indebted to him, that they their lives were affected by him, that they loved him, and that he played this extraordinarily important role in their lives. I think that's something which is worth noting, you know, the, 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 how he touched people's lives. And you, having not known him, but known more about him than anybody, do you like him? Yes, I do like him. I would have really, again, I think I might have been a little intimidated by him. I would really have loved to have gone for a walk with him by ourselves or to sit on a bench and had a chat with him. By all accounts, he was had a magnificent brain, was very funny. But also, I think from the accounts I was able to get, he also had this warmth and generosity of spirit and attention that I think I would really have enjoyed. You know, I'm, there was lots of things about him which I found properly unattractive, his treatment of women. Um, his uh, Some of his financial dealings were not so honourable. Uh, his priority, particularly about uh, authors or his personal interests over his authors. You know, I think Max Hastings, who has a massive grudge against Joy Frydenfeld after this publishing of this book about Yoni, Netanyahu's brother, I think is totally legitimate. <laughs> I think I think George behaved appallingly. So there, there are these kind of you know things which are not attractive. But that is that, is that surprising? Over it, it's worth it's worth being clear that that the, this your your book is not a whitewashing of of this man. You you talk about these. You talk about the Max Hastings incident. You talk about many things which are not attractive. You you raise the point and say, look here, we're going to have to. Uh, address this and that in turn is part of the attractive aspects of this book and I, th I think we should call a halt there and I should say um, that the book Can I ask you a question before you call a halt? Can I ask you a question? Look, you're in the business of uh, more than anybody else maybe of, of, of at the coalface of selling books of working directly with readers you know, I'd be really, having now spent two years writing a book about a man who's at the forefront of publishing, of producing these w works of art, of these books, I would love to know from you what makes a book last? What, what, what is it about books that certain books last and certain books don't last? You know, I, I've been looking at some of the, his books, you know, whether it be Lolita or The Group by May MacArthur or Hedgehog and the Fox. Well, I'd love to hear from you what your thoughts are on that. One of this sounds like an evasion, um, but perhaps that's all the book trade is. But one of the peculiar things about the book trade is that there are, there's not much money in it. There is the odd person who becomes very rich, but very, very few. Um, well, certainly in book selling, but also in publishing. Um, most people who are successful in the trade that they're one way or another juggling things or on shoestrings and yet the trade keeps within it a lot of extremely clever people that there are a lot of clever people in publishing and obviously writers but in all areas of the book trade um, why on earth do they do this instead of going to do something which could farm potatoes and make a lot of money um, well, I think that one of the reasons for that is that the wages of the book trade 
are paid by bandits from the sun. Um, every year, some fluke happens. Um, and, you know, for example, um, The Hair with Amber Eyes, when that was published, Chateau weren't expecting to, to do anything. Um, it was just another book. Um, but it did a lot of work for Chateau's accounts for the next couple of years, and probably still does, and so on. Every year that happens. And each year, everybody tries to recreate the conditions for last year's miracle and um, tries to uh, manufacture a similar success to last year. So what makes a book last? I don't think that anybody knows. Everybody is engaged in it in the industry to try and find out. Um, and it, um, so th that's the evasion, trying to come back to it and be less evasive. I, I think that um, uh, being able to write well is an extraordinarily important part of it. That's a basic. I mean, the book has to be well-written, exactly. Yeah, exactly. but it's amazing how, how often books which just are, are not well-written. But there's so many well-written books. So I think, I mean, talking about going back to George, he had this, I mean, he just had one success after another. And many of these books are going to last. So what? So that that's, I mean, there's something about him because it, this is across so many different authors. So it must be about him. And of course, the team. I mean, he was able to pull together an extraordinary team. You know, uh, this woman, um, uh, Barney Allison, uh, who, you know, uh, was, you know, inc incredible, you know, and, and the way that she was able to, she was one who pulled Margaret Drabble out the slush pile, Saul Bellow, she kept on the team. So maybe it's about also, it's about the team. It's not just about individual tastes. It's about, you know, pulling a team together. And he, he for whatever reason, he was able to do that. But... I, it's an open question, you know. I think also books can be published with confidence, um, by and that that transmits itself certainly to booksellers yeah. and yeah. then outwards. This is the one. This is this is the one. And, yeah, exactly. and you can see every now and again you can see a, a, that a book, the way it looks, everything about it is done on good paper. It's done with yeah. a, a degree paper. of panache, um, yeah. and. That it's been checked properly, you know, it's uh, and it's sold in to the trade. We have done this book, buy yeah, it. Yeah. And and can I tell you, as a writer, as a writer, you know that, yeah. and you know that's happening. I mean, and and when it doesn't happen, you're like, ugh. <laughs> you're like, oh no. <laughs> what can I do to kickstart it? Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, um, this. Book, um, deserves all the um, energy from the starting post that um, oh, one can you. provide. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really interesting book. And the way you've done it, coming back to what you do, it's the way you've done it. I think that the structuring of it through those books that he published is, mm. is absolutely brilliant. It, it opens, it, it's, it's an opening of windows onto this mm -hmm. complex and interesting, um, difficult man 
and it makes it a delight to read. Um, I hope you'll come and sign some copies for us when it of comes course, out. Of course, it's my Mom's pleasure. And, um, Can I just say I love John Sando, best books. You're very kind. Uh, <laughs> and um, £25, um, give us a call or um, send us an email and um, it will be yours. Thank you very much, Thomas Harding. Thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure.